And another thing And another thing And another thing And another thing Welcome to another episode of And Another Thing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tony Clement. Alas, the great, the right honorable Jody Jenkins is not with me today. He is going to a family baseball game, I think. But we're gonna we're gonna pursue this nonetheless. We've got a great guest today, and we will get to her in one second. Uh, I'd be remiss if I did not thank our wonderful sponsors, however. And of course, at the top of the list is the gang at Municipal Solutions. John Mutton and his team are our presenting sponsor. And as you know, if you are a fan of this program, they are Ontario's leading MZO firm. That's right, Municipal Zoning Orders. They are the best at getting those done for their clients, and they are very, very busy doing that. They are great for all sorts of development approvals, permit expediting, planning services with municipalities, uh, engineering and architectural services. If you have a minor variance or a land severance, they can help you. You go to Municipal Solutions. .ca, tell them and another thing podcast sent you and talk to John directly. We also want to thank our other um, associates, of course, um, at Looney Politics. You go to looneypolitics.com. They have a subscription service and we provide uh, at and another thing podcast specific content that you can only hear on Looney Politics. It's a news aggregator site and now, during the duration of the Ontario election, we are also doing a once-a-week 10-minute hit on what happened in the Ontario election this week. So go to looneypolitics.com, subscribe, and you'll get lots of wonderful content. And finally, last but not the least, if you go to huntersbayradio.com, they reproduce or replay our podcasts every Saturday morning at 8.30 a.m., and we are very thankful for that partnership. So you go to huntersbayradio.com for the live streaming. Ah, I think I've done it all. Uh, Jody usually uh, does half of those thank yous, but I was doing them all today. And uh, thank you for listening to that. So without further ado, our wonderful guest today is uh, Ms. Raquel Dancho. He is the Member of Parliament for Kildonan St. Paul's in Manitoba and was elected first in the 2019 general election. She is 32 years old. She is currently the Shadow Minister for Public Safety, and she is also the Vice Chair of the Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security. She is obviously a Conservative Party member. Raquel, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Tony. Thank you for having me. Now, are you in Manitoba right now? Are you in Ottawa? I am in Ottawa, and I have to say, as much as I love being in Winnipeg, where I live with my husband, I uh, it is beautiful weather today in Ottawa. It's got to be almost thirty degrees, and it had snow showers of all things in uh, in Winnipeg today. Ah. So. <laughs> yeah, you you dodged that bullet. That's great. Yeah, no, yeah, uh, yeah Ottawa is quite nice for about two months of the year. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of different now. I, I, I this is really for you really the first time that you're almost having a regular stint as an MP because when you got started, of course, COVID hit and you were doing all of the the stuff uh, from the work from home stuff. So is it does it feel a little bit different now? 
Yes, I feel like I'm finally getting the real experience. And just like you said, I was elected in the fall of 2019, but by the the spring is when the world shut down in March there. there. So it's uh, for the last couple of weeks, it's been, or since uh, probably with January, it's been a lot more travel, just as you're very familiar, the regular schedule, flying in, flying out every weekend. It's been very busy. I'm also going to Israel uh, this Sunday, my first sort of parliamentary wow. overseas trip. Uh, there's been receptions and functions where we can meet policymakers and uh, build relationships with our colleagues. Uh, I have to say, you know, Zoom has its benefits, but it's very difficult uh, to do a a major part of politics, which is building relationships with your colleagues and with others uh, over Zoom. So I've greatly appreciated sort of the return to some normalcy, and I hope it continues. That uh, trip to Israel, is that a multi-party trip? Yes, it's with Sija. And actually, yeah, I was supposed to go almost two years ago to the day. And of course, it got canceled. So this is great. We're really looking forward to my husband is coming. So we're we're very excited. No, that that is exciting. I never did the Sija trips, but I've been to Israel about three times, uh, twice as a minister. And uh, actually, no, once as a minister of industry. And uh, that was kind of weird because I actually spent, uh, it was a two-part trip. So I spent the first part of the trip in Afghanistan, and then the second part of the trip in Israel. And most people don't do that, <laughs> obviously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, after being in Afghanistan with our wonderful troops who were doing an amazing job at Kandahar, and we went, I was with Peter McKay, we went to six forward operating bases around wow. the Tanjwai district uh, of Afghanistan around Kandahar. Uh, but I, you know, some people when they go to Israel are a little bit on edge, you know, because uh, there is some violence, uh, you know, occasionally not as much as you think there is, but there is some. Uh, and so people are a little bit on edge when they get, get to Israel. I was actually ready to kiss the tarmac because I was, you know, in a much <laughs> safer place being in Israel right. than I was in Afghanistan. So uh, it was uh, perspective. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think, you'll, but you'll you'll definitely uh, get a lot out of that. There's a lot to uh, to take in. So I'm glad that you're doing that. But I do want to talk a little bit about um, what you are up to because, as the uh, shadow minister for public safety and and national security, uh, there's a lot going on. So I, I bet you this week you were busy because uh, Justin Trudeau uh, finally announced that we were. Uh, cutting out Huawei from our 5G networks. Was that the the focus of your week this week? Yes, actually. I I just did an in-person for the first time CTV uh, politics panel uh, just about this right before our call. And it is the talk of the town. It's been three, four, five years in the making. Uh, The government, uh, the Liberals first announced uh, in May 2019 that they would be banning this come fall 2019. And we also passed a motion in the House of Commons uh, compelling the government to move forward with this ban a year and a half ago. So it's been a long time coming, and there are several consequences for waiting this long. I can go into that if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Tell, tell me. Well, first and foremost, it certainly impacts our international um, our international standing with our allies. Our Five Eyes allies, for example, uh, moved forward on this years ago, and uh, we were a laggard in that. And that certainly shows us to be uh, – it, it lowers the confidence uh, that our allies have in us that we'll be there, that we'll be in lockstep with them. And when we're ge- you're dealing with an authoritarian regime like the People's Republic of China, you certainly need – 
to be in lockstep with your allies if you're going to stand up to them. And so it certainly lowers our international reputation in that regard. And we're seeing uh, the real consequences of that. For example, we have not been invited to join the quadrilateral security dialogue with India, Japan, Australia, and the US, which is, as you know, sort of a Pacific NATO, very important alliance. Uh, We, we We are a Pacific country, right? That's right. We we are we have a huge Pacific uh, border uh, with the Pacific Ocean, and we have a lot of good trade relationships with this area of the world. And other countries are moving forward with bolstering those uh, trade relationships, bolstering those uh, security arrangements. There's also AUKUS with uh, Australia, the UK, and the US. We were not invited to join that. That's of course collaboration on military procurement, intelligence sharing. So we've been really not invited to the table. And uh, this is certainly the the length of time it took Canada to make this decision is certainly a contributing factor to not being taken seriously. And I think that has long-term national security consequences uh, for Canada and for Canadians, our ability to stand up to China when they act like the bullies they are. So that's one aspect uh, of the consequences of this. And the second aspect is how how much uh, Huawei's got its tentacles into our telecommunications in the last three years that we've been uh, lagging on making this decision. So they've spent $700 million on 5G technology. They are investing, I believe it's annually, $300 million in research and development. It's very extensive how much they've, they've been entrenched in our telecommunications network as the Liberals have sort of sat on their hands and taken their time with this. It's going to take, unfortunately, years to undo this, and it's going to be very expensive. Um, And really, this requires legislation, and they have not put forward that legislation. You'd think that they would have been able, with three years, to have dropped it the day they announced it, but there's no indication that they have that ready yet. So it requires legislation, and presumably the carriers, I'm thinking of Bell, Rogers, and TELUS, etc., they've uh, they've got a lot of this 5G tech from Huawei embedded in their systems. Goodness knows how many backdoors there are in that. And so, uh, yeah, they're, are they sort of, are they coming cap in hand to Ottawa saying we're going to need some money to, to uh, switch things over or how does it work? My understanding is they certainly have asked uh, in Ottawa, I believe uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, our industry uh, minister, has said that Canada will not be uh, paying the billion-odd dollars that uh, is estimated it will cost to remove this technology. Uh, regardless whether the government pays for it through that way or not, the taxpayer will be covering this cost uh, or the consumer will be covering this cost. Well, somehow I think that my wireless bill is going to cover this cost. <laughs> that's that's right. So it, it has significant consequences. And to your point, I mean, this is embedded in our telecom communications in the parliamentary precinct right around parliament we have huawei technology 5g so it's it's considerable and the americans are much more blatant about the risk of espionage and a national security threat francois philippe champagne really danced around this uh, point would not answer the question from media for the last number of days about this so uh we're certainly not as bold and uh that just really shows and how long it took us to make this decision now uh you know it just uh, it reminds me, of course, that uh, MPs. When you're a rookie MP, one of the one of the uh, briefings you get is uh, how to make sure that you're not hacked all the time in your uh, in your online communications. Is that something that still goes on? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
so we have to be we have to be cautious and conscious of it. Um, so again, just yet another. It's just, it's just disappointing that it took us this long as, a, as yes. the Canadian government took this long to do this. And uh, so, the, of course, the China, uh, unsurprisingly, has said, you know, they put out uh, their media that there will be consequences to this. But what's interesting, Tony, is on the same day that they announced this, uh, or that the Liberals announced this, the the People's Republic of China also announced that they're lifting the ban on our canola exports. And why is that? Really? Well, yeah, they need our food. They have what? 1.4, 1.2 billion people. Uh, we have, yeah, it's considerable uh, and they want our pork. They want our canola oils. They need uh, Canadian agriculture and food products. And so it, it, I feel very, it frustrates me a lot as a patriotic Canadian that we, we have not put a strong front. We have not stood up, stood up to China under the uh, Trudeau government, but we do have leverage and we should be using that. And again, yet, yet another reason that we need to be in lockstep with our allies so that we can work in tandem should, uh, should China retaliate. I do a lot of work on supply chain policy now, uh, and, and my role as co-chair of Reshoring Canada. And this, uh, the food supply chain crisis, we're just starting to see the scratching of the surface of this. Is is this something that uh, you're aware of as well? I'm deeply concerned about it, actually. So um, the world consumes a third of the food the world consumed consumes is wheat and corn, mm -hmm. and a quarter of the wheat and corn the world consumes is from Ukraine. So as a result, there are estimates to say that there might be 100, 150 million people that may be uh, going very, very hungry come fall. It is very serious what is coming. Canada, we should be able to feed ourselves. But again, the food prices are what's really we're seeing right. it now. And it will only get worse from every expert. But that's what they're telling us. And so ultimately, that means people on the low income side, people, seniors on fixed small pension incomes, those are the individuals that are impacted the most. And we're already hearing from food banks across Canada that they're in that the uh, the need is increased substantially just in the last few months that which was already higher as right. a result of the job losses from the pandemic so it's it's very serious what we're staring down the barrel of a gun and i'm not hearing any urgency from the liberal government to figure out how to address this another topic that you've been outspoken about uh, in your critic responsibility is uh, the all of the stuff that's coming out now about the Emergencies Act, the deployment of the Emergencies Act uh, during the trucker convoy protests and a uh, lot of revelations coming out of Ottawa these days about who asked for it and who didn't ask for it. So maybe take our listeners a little bit through that. It was uh, so it was, for folks who aren't too familiar with the Emergencies Act, it's, it's one of the most, if not the most powerful law in the land. It was really, it's a follow up to the War Measures Act, and it was designed to be brought in in the worst case scenario. So we're talking about like an invasion, a mass telecommunications breakdown, economic collapse, or, you know, a deadly pandemic. And um, so and then, of course, we have the the convoy come to Ottawa, and there's a range of opinions on uh, on that. But I think what's concerning, what really concerns me, is the failure of leadership from government. We saw consistently Justin Trudeau dumping gasoline on the fire, so to speak, with insults and inflammatory language. Uh, there was no compassion shown for the trauma expressed by the peaceful protesters in Ottawa. Uh, but then after three weeks of them, you know, essentially legally parking on a number of streets in downtown Ottawa, 
they had to bring out the most powerful law in the land was their argument to address this. But how they framed it, Tony, I'm sure you'll recall, was that this was um, the threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act is extremely high and for very good reason because it could easily be used as an abuse of power by a government. So the threshold's high. It has to be a threat to national security, uh, of public safety, or uh, to the economy. And so they made both arguments, but systematically, each uh, each argument has been dismantled since that time. For example, of course, we know the blockades, which blockading and mean critical infrastructure, we're talking railways, pipelines, rid- bridges, roads is wrong and illegal and should not be done. However, all the blockades on the um, on the bridges that caused uh, economic uh, stress uh, were uh, were relieved, were, were opened back up without any of the emergency powers. That's a very critical point. They did right. not need the Emergencies Act or the powers within it to uh, relieve those that, blockades. That was accomplished before they invoked the Emergencies Act. Correct. Well, the uh, the Ambassador Bridge and Coots, yes. And the same day, uh, the um, the Manitoba one was, but the uh, RCMP, uh, I believe, has confirmed uh, my conversations with them. Certainly, they did not use any of the emergency powers to do that. So it was I not see. required. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then in Ottawa, they uh, they argued that it was a uh, public uh, public safety issue. They tried to make connections with the armed assailants uh, at, at Coots, um, but there was uh, no connection found whatsoever that they can point to. No evidence that they were connected at all. So that was um, a dismantled argument. Uh, the members of parliament, uh, the prime minister, the deputy prime minister, staff, uh, people's, p- people from the public walked through that protest. I walked through that protest every day. If it was a true threat to national security and public safety, there's no way that we would have been um, permitted to do that, especially with Zoom parliament capabilities. Um, they have not been able to explain that. Otherwise, it would have meant that they were putting us in danger during that time. So that's right. also dismantled. They talked about guns in Ottawa. No guns were found when the police cleared the um, the protests in downtown Ottawa. They, t- they connected it to an arsonist. Police admitted later that the arsonist was not connected to the convoy. Uh, they've also said that they needed it to uh, commandeer tow trucks to pull the trucks away. But that already exists in um, the police powers already uh, have the power to enlist tow trucks that exists already. They did not need the emergency powers. Uh, they used it to freeze bank accounts. You can do that. You just need to follow due process and the rights of Canadians with a court order, but you have that power. So again, there's just no argument that stands. They said the police asked for this. We've now found out that not a single police level of police asked for this. So well, that was the kicker this week. I guess it came out at yeah. committee, but uh, that uh, we were all under the assumption that the Ottawa police was mm-hmm. this. And uh, now I guess the only guy, the only person who asked for it was Justin Trudeau, really. It's, it seems to be. Uh, it's, it's really quite shocking because again, I think the, uh, for, for us as conservatives, we're, we're long-term thinkers and um, invoking this act and curtailing the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is, of Canadians is a very serious matter. And so to implement it with something like this, where they clearly did not meet the threshold, uh, is a dangerous precedent to set. Uh, people are allowed to peacefully protest. They're disruptive by nature. Uh, so what does this mean long-term? Uh, for the federal government's um, ability to use this next time, maybe a little bit more easily. And then there and there it goes, um, generation and, by and generation. This is a slippery slope argument That's right. used by civil rights groups. And, Correct. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, these are people, uh, either they have no ideology or frequently they have an ideology that is contrary to 
conservative ideology, but we're actually, you know, conservatives and civil libertarians are on the same side saying, you know, you should use this power very sparingly and there has to be a lot more accountability. Correct. And again, it's a, it's the, the opinion one may have about the, the protesters should be separated from the significance right. of using this power. So you can be, have been against the, what the protest stood for. That's fair game. It doesn't mean you have to agree with using the biggest sledgehammer in the land to curtail rights and freedoms. Uh, it's certainly not when the thresholds clearly were not met. Right. I mm-hmm. understood. So what's the next step on this? Does the committee work continue on this or is it over? The committee is continuing, uh, to my understanding, and uh, they're doing good work there. They have um, found a number of, uh, again, from police and uh, lack of um, ability to explain his uh, decisions from the Minister of Public Safety who ultimately signed the bill and um, enforced the bill. Um, But the public inquiry is just getting going, uh, which is those both of those are built into legislation. They had to happen. The liberals waited to the last possible day. I believe it was 60 days. They waited till day 60 to launch the inquiry. And uh, you know, we're not overly confident, uh, based on how they've set it up, that it will be uh, the public accountability inquiry that we had hoped for, since they're framing it right in their language of the inquiry, uh, that they really want to look into the protesters. But the point of the inquiry is to look into the government making right. that decision. It's to hold the government accountable. The, the protesters who broke the law are being held accountable in the court of law right now. It's the government that should be held accountable through this inquiry. That's the purpose of it. So they're really violating the spirit of, of the legislation and the checks and balances therein. So we're not overly confident that it's going to be um, holding the government accountable. So we have to keep doing that as an opposition, yeah. Tony. Sure. Now, Raquel, you you started out, I, I guess you were a, a Manitoba provincial candidate, and then you, you worked, I guess, uh, at the legislature, the Manitoba legislature for a little bit. So uh, being in Ottawa is not completely alien, but it, it's, it, it is different. Uh, I was in the Ontario legislature for nine years and then coming to Ottawa still, mm-hmm. uh, there, there are some differences. So, you know, I just, I'm just wondering, you know, life lessons, like your, your mom or your dad, mom and dad probably taught you some life lessons and, you know, which, which ones really sort of echo with you as you do your job on Parliament Hill? Geez, that's a great question. What lessons did I learn from my parents that have carried through? I, you know, I I really identify a lot with my pioneer heritage in Canada. My family, uh, all sides of my family came across on one of the first major waves of immigration to Canada in the late 18, uh, 1800s. They came from war-torn Eastern Europe. They were very modest, humble peasant farmers who came maybe with one suitcase and bought, you know, 40 acres of land and walked out there and started just clearing the land. And it was a really, really, really difficult life. And I'm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was uh, four generations of farmers that followed and then I was born. Uh, so that those growing up hearing those stories of hardship and how hard they had to work is really what makes me a, a conservative and perhaps a little bit different than the typical millennial of my generation, who really is one of the most privileged generations to ever exist in history. But I see a very you know different take on that and, and that I'm very grateful for everything that we have. And I feel that as conservatives, we need to be, you know, valuing that personal responsibility. We have a duty to be contributing members of society. Uh, so when I came to Ottawa and ultimately, you know, swore an oath to the queen and her heirs and successors, I, I took it very, very seriously. So I suppose it's just that 
responsibility, that appreciation and that respect for how far we've come as a country and how much uh, the duty of my job to represent the, the people of Kildon and St. Paul and ultimately Canadians as a shadow minister uh, weighs heavily. And um, perhaps I take it too seriously sometimes, but I uh, I really want to work hard and do right by uh, those I represent and by my my ancestors who really sacrificed a, a lot. I was the, actually the first to go to university in my entire lineage. So they're all watching wherever they are. So um, that really gives me strength. We uh, had some interesting news in the last couple of days uh, about uh, the latest, uh, there was an opinion poll, not that I I pay heed to every opinion poll, but this one was kind of interesting. Uh, First of all, it showed the Conservatives with a solid six-point lead over the the leaderless Conservatives, really, uh, although Candace is doing a great job. She's not the the full-time leader, Uh, but there's a six-point advantage over the Liberals. But the big advantage was in the 18 to 34-year-old group, where I think it was double digits, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And uh, this is something new for for the last while. I can tell you, having run and won in the 2015 election, it was not easy to to gain millennial votes in that election. They 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 flocked to Justin Trudeau and then the hope and opportunity that he represented for millennial voters. Now we've got millennial and zillennial voters, and it seems that they are really taking a hard look and are liking what they see amongst uh, the Conservative Party of Canada. Can you can you comment as a millennial yourself? Can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, I think you're you're bang on in your assessment. Uh, you know, in 2015, I was uh, recently looking at this. I remember them talking about the millennials. The millennials are voting for Trudeau. He's dominating, and he did. He had 38 percent of the support from the, dem- the 18 to 29 demographic conservatives, as you mentioned. They had 23 percent, 38 to 23. And then today, I saw probably the same poll as you, where it's now conservatives with 38 percent, and the liberals are down to 16. It's it is seismic. It is dramatic. It's incredible. And I think there's a couple factors I would attribute to this. And certainly, technically, actually, the Conservative caucus is uh, is a little younger demographically than the Liberal caucus. We are working very hard on social media and simplifying our communications for this sort of new world of scrolling and videos. And uh, I think we're dominating that compared to the other parties, or at least compared to the, the governing party, the Liberals. I also think perhaps our leadership race has something to do with it and uh, not to, I haven't endorsed anyone in the leadership race, but I think credit where it's due, Pierre Polyev has certainly revolutionized the way Canadian politicians communicate on social media. He is dominating and really, uh, I, I wonder, I don't know, we'd have to see data on this, but my gut tells me it certainly has something to do with that and perhaps his message Messages I'm going to go further because I'm I'm allowed to. Okay, uh, go ahead. <laughs> I, I actually think that uh, amongst that that age cohort, they already think Pierre Polyev is the leader, and uh, that's why they're flocking. That that to to them, it's it's obvious that he is expressing their values, their concerns, their aspirations, and they're assuming mm-hmm. he's already the leader. Now, I'm I'm not saying that in a glib way. I'm just saying in an analytical way that could be part of what's happening here. Well, and I, I think to your point, uh, the millennial generation in particular, when I first went to university in 2008, that was the 2008-2009 recession. So I was graduating university in a fairly poor job market and a fairly weak economy globally. And now with the pandemic, same thing, we're hit again. And the zillennials, as you mentioned, are going in and coming out of your university right around this time. And they're hit with a very sluggish economy with really a changing global landscape of how we work and, and what jobs are available to us. So that economic insecurity 
impacts the way you um, view, obviously, the world. And uh, Pierre, to his credit, is talking about this sort of freedom aspect. And young people also were really had a number of, we all had a number of years stolen, but particularly those those critical youthful you know years in your 20s uh those were stolen from uh, or you know taken away from from young people and i think that that is fairly traumatizing and uh, i think that also influences their opinion on politics and public policy as well and he is you know frankly speaking to that with his message got to ask this question uh it's been a rough week uh for the in a sense for the conservative caucus just because uh the leadership race kind of spilled into uh, that a little bit uh, with Ed Fast uh, and his comments on Pierre and then uh, resigning from his uh, his finance portfolio there. Uh, can you give us a set? I, you know, I'll, I'll give you my bias first and then you can react to that. Sure. My bias is this is a tempest in a teapot. You know, there sometimes feelings are hurt in leaderships, but uh, this is a this is a process that's happening now. Three years from now, none of this is going to matter. Uh, what's going to matter is making the, the correct choice for the party in the country. But uh, uh, give us a sense. I, I, are, are people in, in caucus, are they feeling okay about things right now? I would say that uh, leadership races are tough, which you know. It's uh, this is the this is the second one that I've been through as an elected member. Uh, of course, I came in with Andrew Shear and then uh, Aaron O'Toole, and now interim leader Candice Bergen, who's doing an excellent job. It and now we'll have a new leader in spring, so it's always an uncertain time. People feel very passionately about the uh, individuals that they're endorsing. They also have a lot riding on their candidate winning, especially when you criticize publicly the other candidates, um, and so. It's, um, I, I would say, it, yeah, it's 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 tough, but uh, for the most part, quite frankly, uh, spirits have been very high. Of course, a number of things have happened this week. You mentioned one with Ed Fast and uh, Jason Kenney as well. We have a large Alberta caucus, obviously. So there's there's a number of things that are that are happening, but uh, ultimately, I think we want uh, a strong leader who can defeat Justin Trudeau and provide a real alternative to the Liberals, to Canadians that really meets the moment uh, and the issues that Canadians are facing. But, you know, to go to say specifically, I, I have a lot of respect for Ed Fast. He is a, uh, a very, uh, you know, very classy man, very intelligent man. Uh, I support his freedom to, uh, to criticize leadership candidates uh, and work on another candidate's um, you know, campaign. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, I think no one is uh, beyond criticism. And I think the Bank of Canada uh, has failed to meet its mandate of 2%. Um, and no one, you know, the Bank of uh, the Governor should is not, you know, beyond reproach. Mm -hmm. And if he's failed to meet that mandate, I mean, it has real consequences, Tony. Right. You know, it may not have consequences for people like the governor of the Bank of Canada. It has consequences for my constituents that are living on, you know, seniors who are living on fixed incomes, young families who are struggling. When inflation is hitting this high, this this is where people drop into the poverty level. They drop out of the middle class and they drop into poverty. They can't feed their families. They're having to make decisions over energy or housing or food or prescription drugs. So I, I believe that the Bank of Canada, you know, is not beyond criticism. Now, Pierre has his own delivery of his policies and sometimes, um, you know, maybe it's a bit bold for some people, but I don't disagree with him that uh, the bank hey, should be criticized. You know, well, well before you were born, perhaps, but uh, <laughs> in 1993, uh, you know, there, there was a, a liberal leader named Jean Chrétien and he ran in that yes. election 
And one of his planks in his platform was uh, that he didn't agree with the, the governor of the Bank of Canada at the time, right. a gentleman by the name of John Crow. And he said he was going to replace him. And what did he do when he got elected? Uh, they did it in a polite way, he, uh, but he was replaced. And right. uh, so this is not unprecedented. And uh, ultimately, I believe that the governing elected politicians have to have uh, some say in monetary policy in this country. So that's my... That's or at my. least think about it. Unlike Justin yeah. Trudeau, I'm sure you remember that in the last election oh. when he was asked. He's like, you'll forgive me if I don't think a lot about monetary yeah. policy. Well, oh. That's clear now with the inflation we're facing. So you exactly. Know, we exactly. have to have the tough discussion. So I'm on board for that. Well, we're going to leave it at that. Raquel uh, Dancho, thank you so much for joining and Another Thing podcast. Very interesting discussion. I'm glad we, we got to talk about these topics and uh, we wish you well.